Hello, and welcome to the Grand Stories, Profiles in Aging podcast. My name is Dr. Robert Cosby of the Howard University School of Social Works Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. I will be your host as we talk about aging and equity with social justice leaders and community members. I look forward to your being with us. I have a great guest with me here today. I think you'll really enjoy some of our dialogue and discussion and are very much uh, looking forward to our discussion. I have with me Mr. Don Clarkson. Don has a very illustrious career uh, in social work. And I think that you're gonna be really impressed with some of the things that he has to say. Mr. Clarkson, welcome. Well, I'm happy to be here with you. Uh and also to be with someone who was from our dear old alma mater, which uh, formulated many things for me in my life. And as I remember the hill and the hill meaning Howard's Hill rather than that other hill where hell is, well, you know what I mean. <laughs> Capitol Hill, yes, of course, in Washington, DC. Um, well, I certainly uh, welcome you. Um, you may hear some uh, bells in the background. That's uh, sort of the the carillon for uh, for the the um, main uh, carillon that you know from our uh, library, and uh, we think it's a it's a great way of being able to explain what's going on and sort of grounded in knowing that you're on the campus of Howard University, and so uh, we were grateful to be here. So uh, you said that you uh, have had some, some interesting experiences um, uh, when we talked briefly earlier. Um, I'd like for you, for our audience, and for uh, just to share with me, um, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, if you would, please. Well, that should take 30 seconds, but <laughs> <laughs> I... Um... I think I wound up in, in the profession I'm in mainly because of my history. Uh, I came from a kind of awful family, but a good family um, as a youngster back in uh, California. My father worked on the railroad, so I never saw him. My mother was mentally ill and had some other problems and go with it. And I was the youngest of uh, three kids. And so I was at the bottom and I came from a place where a uh, father who was working two jobs could never be home with me and two older siblings uh, actually uh, three older siblings, I'm, I'm gonna have to go back and ask why I left one out. <laughs> Since I was like five, you know, my father put me on a train and sent me to California, uh, to Texas to live with my aunts. And how old were you then? About five. Five years old. Yeah, and that's mainly because he knew he could not take care of me. And my older siblings could, you know, they could go to school on their own and things like that, but I couldn't. At the time, I really thought that um, uh, he just didn't, must not have liked me 
because he would send me with a mother who was really out of this world to go live with these aunts. And he kept my three, uh, you know, my bro two brothers and a sister. And so I didn't like this man. I didn't like this man because this man, um, I felt dumped me and, but I was just not old enough to understand why he did it. It was only when I went back in about 12 or 13 and got some of the facts that I released some of that. But I, I grew up, uh, I, I'm trying to put this in perspective and I hope that this doesn't get boring to you, but. No, it's not boring at all. Please go I ahead. grew up with my first aunt and I was raised by three aunts and uh, three women who were all very, very different. But the luck of the draw was that my first aunt was a school teacher and she was a school teacher for all of the elementary school children in Graham, Texas, period. She was it. And she was the one who gave me the foundation of things. She also taught me that uh, you cannot be a, a weak because I was her, her, her nephew and all the kids knew that I was a, her nephew. They chose to pick on me because of that and I would be scared and I finally got into a fight. She didn't say anything. She let the fight continue and then we were staying in this black couple's house with one room in the back of the house. This guy was the biggest barbecue salesman restaurant in all of Graham, Texas. But we could not go into that restaurant because he didn't want to spoil it with us, our blackness. I know that's what it was now. I didn't know at the time. So back, back up for me. So, so, for, so you say that uh, you were how old at this point? Five still? Uh, six, five and six at this point. Okay, and you were five or six and that you were staying with your aunt and you were living in uh, the back Graham. room of of a restaurateur who did barbecue, and right. this was in Graham, Texas. Correct. That is correct. So, why would you think that he didn't want to show you or make sure you were available or knowledgeable or around the restaurant? What made you made you think that? Well, at the time, all I know is mine said, you cannot cross this. There was a little driveway between the house and the uh, driveway. He said, you can't cross that line while the restaurant is open. He doesn't want you there. Um, but that was the only place we could live. And so at the time, I didn't know what that was about, but I knew it was bad. And I sort of uh, held on to that position that it was bad. Um, so... It was later, as I know, that he didn't want the white people to see us in their restaurant, maybe messing with their food. I don't know. But quite aside from that, it was more to this story. And I want you to hear how it was important, because we would go home from from Graham, Texas, to Fort Worth, Texas, where the, we lived uh, for the weekend and then get you on the bus and go back. The bus trip from Fort Worth to Graham, Texas was awful. Most of the time it was nighttime. Uh, we'd be sick from the gasoline and diesel fumes, and but they would keep us in the back of the bus. And I would hear my aunt say, can't we move up a seat? Because we were the only ones on the bus most of the time. And the profanity that the bus driver would say to us, 
uh, I could see the tears in my aunt's eyes. And she would say to me, one day we will get over this. Uh, and all I know was sick. And I, I actually stayed allergic to diesel fumes till I was like 16 or 17. It was just, I thought it came into me. But the fight, when the fight that we had, she said, look, I saw what you did. And I don't ever, as long as you live in this house with me, ever see you kowtow to a somebody bullying you, that you had better stand up. Because if you don't, you're going to catch holy hell when you get home. Well, as fate would have it, uh, I did fight with boys, but I learned not to really fight. I learned how to negotiate that system after that. And they learned to negotiate with me because I did not give into it anymore. I think the more they understand that they give into that stuff, it only invites more. And so that became very important. But the next event was I was sent to another aunt. <laughs> so it's like, I said, why don't they, she doesn't want, why doesn't she keep me? And um, so how long, how old were you when you had to go with the other aunt? Uh, I had to be close to about nine. Okay. So, uh, so it was almost like sort of like foster homes. Yeah. Except I knew they loved me, but that love was not one that I really was interested in at that time. Okay. <laughs> it was I, there. I can, I can appreciate that. So, when you say that you um, had to go, were these on your father's side of the family? Or your All on my side mother's side. All on my mother's side. On your mother's side of the family. Okay. And did you know about your mom and what was going on with her? Oh, I knew about her. And I have to say the one thing about my mom, and she was she would hallucinate and all the things you can think of, but she never lied to me. She was the keeper of the family secrets and... Um, she managed to successfully let me in on the secrets, which upset the rest of the family. I uh, see. And, and where, was, where, where was she the eldest or where was she in the order of the, of the, she sisters? was next to the youngest daughter in that of, of, of a family of about 13. My grandfather had 13 kids. I see. And um, were your grandparents in your life at that point? My grandfather was. I never knew my grandmother on that side of the family. Uh, okay. He lived to be like 101. So he was up there. And he always used to call me Mr. Jim. And I couldn't figure out why in the world would he call me Mr. Jim? Of all the names he could call me, Mr. Jim. And I would ask. And it was only in later life that someone said, you know, he was talking about Jim Crow. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. And, and I didn't. And so, so you didn't know that he was trying to tell you about Jim Crow or he was actually calling that as your name? Well, I thought it was my name from him. I thought that's who I was. I but, see. Okay. But, but he really uh, uh, was uh, a victim of obviously, you know, the bad stuff in the world at that time. Slavery. Uh, he lived in a little town called Camilla, Texas. Um, which I got to go there, obviously, in in the summer times to help him cut wood for the winter, which I always hated because it was cutting wood on a crosscut saw with ticks biting me and uh, wanting to get home. But he was always good to me. And I think 
from all I could put together, I was one of the few people that he liked. <laughs> Most of his children didn't. <laughs> okay. Either they didn't like him or he didn't like them. That's a good question, but whatever it was, I know they didn't like him. Okay. Uh, but so, so you ahead. were saying at eight or nine, you were, and were you helping cut the wood at that age? Or? No, no, no. I was about 11 or 12 at that time. Okay. I would go down because I was living in Houston with my aunt in Houston, Texas. This is your second aunt? Yes. Okay. And, uh, and she was helping uh, to give you lessons about life or you, how, how did, what was the rhythm of a day at that time for you? Well, this is a woman who, you, who spoke perfect English but never finished the third grade. Um, she was a very well-known in the church community there in Houston, at least at the church. Um, she made sure that uh, I spent my Sunday school, church, Baptist Young People's Training Union, and evening church every Sunday. Okay. So I was really filled with all of that stuff. And it really was uh, um, kind of tiring. <laughs> and okay. the, only, the only good thing about church after, after one o'clock to me was the young girls who would be there. But that was about it. <laughs> okay, so that was probably around 12 or a little later, maybe. Yes, you got it. Okay, all right. Uh, and so what happened at that point? Well, several things. Number one, I really was taught to work. Uh, I actually had evening jobs after school. My aunt, uh, while she looked like she knew everything, she worked in the laundromat taking in clothes. But we stayed in a nice home because it was her cousin's home there in Houston. And so I always thought that I was rich. And, okay. uh, and I went to the school Booker T. Washington, which was also lucky for me because it was a school dedicated to learning. Uh, we never had any football team because uh, nobody wanted to go to Booker T. and play ball. Uh, so that was a good thing for me. Uh, and so we had a lot of competitive stuff education wise. I always thought that the luck of the draw for me is that I went to Booker T, although the people who went to the other two predominantly black schools would argue with me on this point. But were these this was primarily middle school or high school at this point? Middle to high school. The whole okay. Time. Right. All right. And I stayed with her. And then every summer I was sent to Dallas, Texas, to be with another aunt. Okay. This is the third aunt. Third aunt. Uh, okay. who. I don't know how to describe my dear aunt, but she had a rough voice, a rough voice, and she was into diamonds and cars and a husband who was nice, but she would talk rough. But if you went to get some gasoline at the gasoline store, because they pumped it for you at that time, she would say, may I have a five gallons of gasoline, please? And, and <laughs> so she could turn it on and turn it off. Oh, boy, because she turned it on and turn it off. Um, but, uh, I always felt loved by these women. I just don't think they knew what they were doing with me in terms of how I was feeling. And so did they ever have any children? Not that, none of these aunts had children. 
None. Okay. And um, interesting was, that you asked that. <laughs> what were were did your your dad send uh, money to try and help, or did they have to take care of you on their own? Uh, you must be intuitive in this case. Uh, <laughs> I told you I just did not like my father at all. And on a couple of occasions, way back when I was staying in Fort Worth, he sent me $50 in cash. <laughs> and it got to me, strangely enough, that was good mail at that time. Um, and wrote me a note saying, I hope you enjoy Christmas or something like that. And my aunt, who was a school teacher, taught me to write. I used to have a really great penmanship, but I put all the money back in the envelope and sent it back to him. Wow. So you were angry with him. Oh, understatement. And my friend said to me, Don, you're just crazy, crazy. You should write for more money. Don't send it back. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a point there. You know. So <laughs> no. what happened at that point? Well, we I never really talked to him after that, um, except that when I... Uh, got old enough to go out to California to see my brothers and sisters. That's when I would meet up with him. He was very nice to me and all, but I could never connect with him, but I wasn't angry with him anymore after I understood the anger dissipated. And were you able to connect with your other siblings at that point? Yes. My sister in particular, because she was my mother when I was staying in California. And in fact, she took care of me until she sent me away. She still calls me her son, she's 92 now, we're 10 years apart. Okay. And we talk every week and she's telling me about how screwed up the world is. And I listen to, I have to listen to a sermon uh, all about it. And so the one good thing about caller ID, I mean, whatever it is, it comes on the phone. I choose to whether or not I can tolerate to listen to it before At I that particular time. I, okay. So, <laughs> but, uh, so you, you decide on the time when your patience is probably at a good point. Okay. Yes. So, I, so tell me, um, how did you, what, what was happening in the communities around that time when you were growing up and what part of California was this? I don't know about that part of California, but it was, um, it was near the Watts area. I know that. Okay, so Los Angeles. Oh, it was that. Los Angeles, yes. Okay. And and did you, uh, t can you can tell me what was happening? You mentioned your grandfather was talking about Jim Crow. What did that, uh, how did that translate in terms of your experiences that you knew of in Los Angeles, California? Well, it didn't translate at all to California. It was only when I got a little older in Texas that it did. Okay. Um, but I know how he would talk about those damn people and having to count marbles and they want money for me to vote and things like that. Uh, he was, he stayed angry. Uh, so did like you I, say he want, they, they wanted money from him in order to vote? Yeah, I think it was the poll tax. Okay. Uh, that's what yeah. it boiled down to be. Okay. Um, and we, we'll, we can sort of, ex, uh, sort of uh, probe a little bit and discuss that maybe in a little bit, but Tell me, um, so your your most of your uh, early childhood and teen experiences, you said, were in in parts of Texas. Yes, and right? mainly mainly Houston. That's where okay. most of it. And and did you find that uh, you were able to escape the issues of racism and 
classism and those kinds of things while you were there? Well, let's put it another way. I didn't know that I was. <laughs> okay. Um, because I was taught how to behave uh, and what to do. And that is, Do not let anybody know anything about what's going on in your life. Do not wash your dirty linen in laundry. Be quiet. And everything that goes on in this home and family stays there. And it shouldn't come out any place. And that meant every, any place. Um, and I couldn't understand what that was about. I understand it now. And, but I didn't understand it then. So could you explain to me what you thought it was at that time and what you think it is now? Well, let me tell you, let me do it backwards if that'll help. Sure. Um, I'm clear that they were trying to protect me from getting hurt. <laughs> okay. Uh, Both physically and emotionally? Yes. Mentally? But, okay. But, so, you know, at that time, I was living there in what was the fourth ward of, of Houston at that time. And, you know, uh, police broke into my house, our house at midnight to take my cousin who was spending the night there to drag him off to jail uh, because he had not paid some parking tickets, actually broke into the house over parking tickets. Wow. Uh, so so the, the police came to get him in your house, broke down the door and came in and arrested him and took him to jail because he hadn't paid parking tickets. That is correct. Wow. And so the idea was, is that you had not to let authority uh, that somehow you had to obey authority, but that didn't mean you respected authority because they would always talk about those cops. They would always talk about the, the badness that was going on, but you were never supposed to uh, allow that to show. You couldn't let that show. It was important to keep that to yourself. And so, so that's a lot of burden to keep to yourself, wasn't it? Well, it was, but, you know, I didn't perceive it that way. Um, I perceived it later in life <laughs> that I wound up keeping things to myself that I should never have kept to myself. Uh, okay. that, that, Example that, for me, please. Well, um, I saw a lot of abuse. Okay. With some of my cousins and, and things that were awful, and I didn't talk about him. I should have talked about him, but I didn't. And when you say uh, abuse, you're talking about physical abuse, sexual yes. abuse, mental. What are we talking about? I'm talking about physical abuse. Um, uh, that somehow there were family members who uh, they weren't very nice, although I had some that were very uh, men. I'm talking about men now. Let me be clear. I'm talking about men abusing their wives and girlfriends. Uh, I saw a lot of that coming up. Oh, domestic violence. Yes. The other and, side. And when, when you saw those things happening, um, what, what did you do? What, how did that affect you? You didn't talk about it. <laughs> so, so you just kept it all inside. Yeah, you know, and if you brought it up, and it, it'll go away. It'll, you know, things happen, and that's the way life is. Yeah. yeah. So what I, what I saw was women always taking care of the men. Mm -hmm. That's what I saw. The men were very strong in different ways. There were men who would teach you how to do things, but they didn't teach you how to deal with things. So right. Teach you how to do things, but not how to deal with things. That's an interesting point.
Yes. Um, so when you had an opportunity to learn these things, um, I, I, I remember my father saying uh, whenever they would talk to family back in his home in a rural pl- place outside of um, Pittsburgh, he had a saying that I found out later from my aunts and uncle that that it was a common saying for many people in the community um, when something bad happened, they would say, it's just one of those things. And that could be anything from someone got raped to someone got beaten with a bat to the police coming and beating the person in jail to, uh, you know, someone, uh, getting into a car accident and losing their leg, uh, they would just sort of say it was one of those things. So I, I used to mention to my siblings that, you know, dad must have had it really rough, you know. Uh, but what does he mean when he says one of those things? And, I, and so here I'm hearing you say something that isn't that foreign. It was uh, a bad experience, but you just weren't supposed to talk about it. Yeah, and that is is key you just didn't talk about it because what could you do about it that was always a a a feeling that goes with it so there was always a piece of helplessness when i would talk uh, to one of my cousins who we weren't very close but i would say why would you do it and the answer was i don't know okay did it (laughs) so you just cover for yourself that was sort of the the universal i just did it yes Um, that that sounds like a lot of men (laughs) Uh, we we often say some things that maybe not make quite quite a lot of sense at times. Um, so I want to shift gears a little bit. I appreciate your sharing some of what were some of the meaningful experiences for you. Um, what would you say were the thing that most helped to shape who you are now? Oh boy. Uh, I still think my aunt, my first aunt, who always told me to stick with it regardless. And that, and actually I have sort of put this as a guiding point for all of my practice that pain is inevitable, but you don't learn without it. Pain that, is inevitable, but you don't learn without it. Okay. That love will take care of you after you endure the pain, but not the other way around. You don't love and endure pain that if you can struggle with. And I think that has been a guiding form. I didn't quite understand it at the time, but I understood it later. And I, I believe it is what I teach. Uh, and uh, I have a t-shirt that was made for me by one of my people that I have worked with that says, without fear, there is no growth. There is no, and that, I believe that. And Without fear, there is no growth. Yes. You can't say that you are full of courage if you don't have fear. Yeah. What you have to do to overcome that fear. That's okay. correct. And so live with, the, live with the fear, but deal with the courage. Um, so I have loved that moment and uh, uh, I've stuck with it. The, so I say she was very important. And then I had a band director when I was in high school uh, who, when I was playing in the high school band, he would, 
I think he knew something was there and he always said, you're going to be great one day. You're going to do good. And he always encouraged me in ways that not other people would do. I was not a great musician, but I was a pretty good musician, but he would put his arm, literally put his arm around me and say, I, I want you to do this, or I want you to take care of that. I don't let this get under your skin. These are the kind of things he would say. And he was one of the first warm men that I knew outside of my grandfather, who I knew he was a mean, but he was never mean to me. He was mean to everyone else. So he was very important to me. Uh, I have stuck with those two, but I think the person who um, maybe was was there because I had so many people. Because my aunt, who was a school teacher, she was the one who would say, uh, "Listen to what they're saying, but look at what they do." <laughs> she always said that to me. Listen to what they're saying, but look at what they do. Sort of. Uh... <laughs> The actions, not the words. That's correct. And because uh, I remember uh, way back when, when everybody was talking about Davy Crockett and the Alamo and all those things, she would say, that's a nice story. But the story is, is they wanted to keep their slaves. That's what the fight was about. <laughs> and she would say things like that to me, which uh, I thought was, you know, I didn't really get it when she would tell it to me. But when she told it to me and I go back, I learned a lot of stories like going backwards and bringing them forward to the present. Uh, and so her thing was to me, and it's always felt like your job in, in life is to get out of jail. Uh, and that there were all kinds of jails in our life, but the jail is never to look at what's there inside of you, but you're looking at the other people to get you out of jail. The real struggle is to get out of your own jail so that you could view what is going on. So. Uh, get out of your own jail to be able to see the world as it is because you're busy protecting yourself from this pain and um, and I had a lot of events in my life where I wanted to not say anything uh, in life but she was there now you know uh, when I was coming up people would talk about who are the black people in your life well you know they talked about Ralph Bunch I said who the hell is Ralph Bunch Okay. Uh, civil rights and uh un person correct yeah, but I it, so i knew it was something to to aspire to mm-hmm. but i was also a howard university person as i recall i think that's right as you yep. said i'm not sure but i know he had something to do with the israeli conflict too that was well uh, internationally his ability to negotiate and and uh be able to find c- compromise was was quite uh, quite good um, but you were saying um, uh, those are things that shaped you. Uh, I know, and I heard some of the things you were talking about, you said in your teaching. Um, I know you've had a long and illustrious uh, career. Um, could you share with me a little bit about uh, your background and, uh, and what you've done in terms of group work and your discussion and dramatization you were talking about. Stay tuned for part two of our interview with Mr. Don Clarkson, where we discuss the ways all of these influential people and moments shaped his career path and his work in the field of social work and beyond. 
This podcast was sponsored by Howard University School of Social Work's Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at HU underscore gerontology. That's G-E-R-O-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y to stay up to date. The music you hear is performed by the Howard University Jazz Ensemble under the direction of Fred Irby III. I hope you'll join me in two weeks as we explore more social justice and aging issues. Be well and take care.